I'm Jeff Cohen. Sari Kapitnikov spent years teaching kids of all ages in the classroom. Now, through that JewishMoment.com, Sari devotes her time to creating new and interesting ways to educate and inspire kids, teens, and grown-ups on the joys and richness of Judaism. She's here today to share her story and how she's helping countless people live as proud Jews. Sari, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and there's a lot we're going to get to about this amazing content that you're creating. But first, I'm sure our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit. So even before you tell us your story, what do you know about kind of your grandparents, great-grandparents, where they came from, and, and how they lived their lives religiously? Great question. So I don't know much about my ancestors from long ago. I do know that my grandmother comes from Russia. I think her parents used to exchange uh, love letters in Russian. I think we have those letters somewhere buried in an attic. Um, they were not religious. Um, I think their parents weren't religious. I know both of my parents consider themselves to be Baalei Tshuva. Um, they found the path of Judaism. They found each other. And then they had four children. And your parents were born and raised in the United States? Yes. I think I'm a fourth generation American. Wow. Okay. So where in what part of the country? My mom's from Philadelphia. My dad's from Baltimore. And then they moved to New York. Okay. And so that's where they had you? Exactly. And your siblings. Okay. So you view yourself as someone who was like born into a religious family, even though your parents discovered it at some point, you know, through their own parents or, or as they were adults. Like what, what, what point did they kind of get on the observant lifestyle? Do you know? I think my mom was very inspired by the Hillel on her campus in college, and she spent some time in Israel, and she loved that. My father spent some time in Or Sameach in Jerusalem, and he never left them. He, he still works for them today abroad. He teaches Torah to business executives for Or Sameach. So I think I get my passion for education and Judaism probably from him. Now give us a sense of like, as you were growing up, kind of the early childhood part, did you view yourself as like from from birth and that was like all you've known for your entire childhood? Or was there ever a point where you your family was not kind of where you are at this point in your life? I think I always had an appreciation for all different kinds of Jews because our relatives, everybody had a different amount of knowledge about Judaism. Um, my parents sent us to Orthodox schools. At the same time, they gave us an appreciation for culture and developing our own hobbies. So when I think back of my, you know, to my childhood, I think of this colorful, interesting combination. I feel like they kind of made their own mix. Got it. And so it's so fascinating having someone like you on the podcast, because we have a lot of guests who were raised completely secular. And so their story arc has this moment where they discover religion, whatever it is that does it, you know, it could be a rabbi, it could be Israel. And now we're talking to you who's who's born into an observant family. And so I'm wondering, as you're being raised, is there a point where you're asking, why is this the lifestyle that my family is leading? Why are we observant? Is there a point in your childhood where you get to those internal questions, or do you just accept it as this is the life that I know? Well, I, I think having my parents kind of encourage us to ask ourselves and to think about these things and to not take it for granted. I would sometimes meet with my father's students, and they would have all these questions for me and be so intrigued about my lifestyle, and it made me kind of view it in a new lens and think about it. Hey, why do I keep Shabbos or Shabbat every single week? Or why do I only eat food that has kosher symbols on it? Given what you now do through that Jewish moment, I'm wondering, what were your parents doing 
that was inspiring you and making you think, wow, they're doing something right here that's making me want to stick with this lifestyle? My my mom, she had put bumper stickers and everything, not just her car. Like growing up, we had stickers on her filing cabinets, and one of them said, do what you love, love what you do. Or, and another one said something like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. So I get that from my mother. She kind of built her own business from scratch. She is a, she, you know, still is a healthcare provider, nurse, midwife, very into holistic health, yoga. And she she's all about doing what you love. And then I had my father doing also something that he was super passionate about. And he turned Torah into his business, into his work. So the, the way he was able to keep that into his life and always, you know, do what he's passionate about. I think they both inspired me to do the unconventional and try to do what I love and fill that passion. Right. And they always say it's more about what your parents are doing than what they're saying. So as I listen to your story, right. both of your parents were modeling something that probably really inspired you to, to be on this track as you're seeing how they integrated into their lives. Yes, 100 percent. I, I I see myself as like a permanent 11-year-old, and I definitely get that from my mom. I mean, we would play hide-and-seek. She would use the scooter, you know, to go down the block. She always has been a kid at heart, so I, I get that from my mom. And then my father is more, you know, a reserved person. He has a very sharp sense of humor. He's kind of quiet about it. I got a little bit of that, too. Very nice. And so, uh, you know, I mentioned to you before we started that this podcast is through the OU, and there's some work that they've been doing about this idea of what keeps kids on the path or not. And that a lot of parents think, well, I'm sending my kids to yeshiva and that should be enough. Like I've done my part. It's such a huge expense. So that should be like the entirety of what I need to do to keep them interested in living an observant lifestyle. And a lot of the research that the OU is doing is showing that it's really more so than the yeshiva is what the parents are doing within the home that either meshes with or doesn't with what the kids are doing in school. So it sounds like from like the way you're describing your, your family that your parents intuitively knew to be modeling certain things in the home that were probably meshing really nicely with what you were learning in school that probably gave you this positive outlook on living this lifestyle. Right. I'm so with you and the research about the, the importance of the family education. That's where the learning really takes place. And hopefully the teachers can solidify that. But so much goes on at home. Okay, so now as we kind of progress your story, even though you're an eternal 11-year-old, like you said, there must have been a point where you, you thought, all right, I have to start thinking about what I want to do for a living. So as the, yeah. as the college years were approaching, did you, did you know what you want to do and did it factor into where you went to school? Well, I honestly still say I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I do <laughs> love that. Every year I, I make up new things, I figure it out, and I think that's fun and there's fun in that. Um, it took me a very long time to figure out which direction to go and I'm what I think there's a current term for it, a multi-passionate. Um, there are so many things I'm interested in. I taught myself sign language when I was in eighth grade. I was interested in becoming a Pixar animator, a nurse because I love, I, I watched Patch Adams as a kid and I wanted to be that medical clown almost, you know, who can help put kids at ease. I was pre-dent for a little bit. So when I got to college, I majored in biology to, I thought that dentistry was the way to go. And I, one day in college, I saw an advertisement. I fell for the ad. It said, be the inspiring teacher you always wish you had. And at the same time, I was shadowing a dentist. And I realized that I didn't love the science and the dentistry as much as I love the interaction with the kids and helping kids socially, emotionally. 
So I decided to enroll in Yeshiva University had, um, they still have Azraeli master's program and they were launching a one year full scholarship accelerated program. So I got my master's in Jewish ed. At the same time, I participated to get my certificate in experiential Jewish education, which is a mouthful, but it's totally uh, affected the way I view education, that it's you know about the hands-on learning. So even though I didn't get to be all those things I dreamed of, you know, the veterinarian, the teacher for the deaf, I do feel like now I'm, I'm getting to use a lot of those things that I dreamed of using. And was there any consideration when you were thinking about where to go to school, whether you should go to a Jewish type college or a secular one? And did that factor into the idea of would that make it harder, easier to live an observant lifestyle during the college years? I don't even think it was a decision. I think it was an obvious choice for me. I had such a good experience at my Jewish high school, and then I spent a year abroad in Israel, and it was kind of automatic for me that I wanted to continue that atmosphere to be in a Jewish bubble, call it. But it enabled me to take my studies seriously. And at the same time, by the way, while I was in Stern College, I did participate in their joint program with Fashion Institute of Technology, FIT, um, which is a very serious art school. So I got a taste of the college life every time I was at FIT, but I was always grateful to go back and be with my friends in a Jewish atmosphere, eat lots of ice cream from their kosher ice cream machine. <laughs> I had a, a great experience with combining those two schools. I like your perspective on this. I have a really good friend who got into YU and Columbia University. And this is a number of years ago, and then he decided to go to Columbia because he wanted to put the Ivy League name on his resume. And now these number of years later, he actually thinks if he had gone to YU, what he would have benefited from the network of religious people that he would have met, and he sees how they're all taking care of each other within different jobs and industries, and he realizes he went for the Ivy League title, but there was possibly more to gain from the relationships he would have built if he'd stayed within the religious community. Hmm. It's always hard to look back at something that you've done. I mean, I have friends who went to lots of you know secular colleges, and it's about kind of your approach going into it you can definitely stay strong and stay connected to your judaism if you have a you know a campus life there um there are some great directors and rabbis and people who are who you know who are associated with these colleges i think for me the 11 year old like sometimes i'm a little bit naive or trusting and i'm i very much absorb my surroundings so i i think it's important to kind of protect myself but i think there are people who have had successful and Jewish-filled experiences elsewhere. For sure. Well, I think, like you said, it comes down to the more you're surrounded by it, the easier it is to stay on the track. And the less you are, the more you have to have that like internal strength to say, I'm going to hold to my convictions, even though I'm having more exposure to things that are kind of a risk to me staying on the path. Exactly. Okay. So let's now continue with your story. So you're, you, you get your degree, and what's the first job you get at that point? I was thrown in no, I mean, I signed up for it, but I was a middle school teacher my first year with 133 students. And I'm somebody who needs to get to know each student. And I made it my business to memorize their names. I had printed out their pictures and their names and their birthdays, and I wrote down all their birthdays on the calendar so I could give them birthday cards. Um, so it was definitely overwhelming as a first year teacher. And actually, I was put also in charge of the middle school tefillah group for girls. And if you know anything about middle schoolers, they're a little bit like sharks. They smell fresh blood. And I remember when I walked in on the first day, 
I could just see all these sharks smelling the water. <laughs> the first day was horrible, like absolute chaos. I didn't know anything about anything. I mean, yes, I had a master's degree and even some experienced student teaching, but you don't know anything really until you're in it. And the first few weeks were so difficult, but I made it my mission for the year to figure out how to turn around that tefillah group, how to turn it into not just to get the kids quiet and behaving and listening, but to turn it into a place that almost was magical where they can tap into the power of tefillah. So this was about 10 years ago and I had an idea to create something called a davening diary and I bought these little notebooks probably from the dollar store and gave each kid their notebook and we named our group and we started out with prompts and by the end of the year, not only was tefillah a quiet period, not only was it a place where people were davening, but they were enjoying it, they were savoring it, they looked forward to it. And I had a dream to eventually publish that davening diary. And thank God, this past November, 10 years later, I did. But it all started in the crazy beginning of middle school as a first-year teacher. So, and where was the school and what, like, what kind of school was it? This was a modern Orthodox day school in the tri-state area. It's interesting as you're talking about middle school because I have uh, one child who just finished middle school and one who's in sixth grade and a younger child also. And they say the same thing, that there are teachers who can control the room and own the room. And there are classrooms where the kids are like running the classroom and taking advantage of the teacher. So it sounds like you were at risk of that happening to you, but you figured out some things to kind of take back control and inspire the kids. So what were a few of those early things that started working for you? Like you said, those first few weeks were like very difficult. When did you start turning the corner? Like what did you see was helping you connect with them better? I am a voracious reader. I have so many books about education and I had read them previously in my master. Well, I was, you know, in my master's program thinking, okay, yep, sounds good. That makes sense. Great. Highlight check. And then when I was in it, I would go back to these pages and say, oh, that's what they mean. I found Doug Lemov's book, Teach Like a Champion, very helpful actual little practical steps on how to get your students on board with you. I think when it really comes down to it, I feel like the bottom line is if you show your students respect, they will respect you. And if you create that atmosphere and that environment of, I care about you, I'm on your team, I'm not against you, I find that that really helps. And I never felt like I had to lose my sense of humor or my lead back personality. As long as I took myself somewhat seriously sometimes and showed them that I cared about them and their growth, they joined me. And it was no longer a fight against them. But I had to really hold to it and every day keep to my procedures and my rules and not give up and think, they got me. You know, <laughs> I give up. It's, I, I can do this. And I would try again and again. It was very difficult. And the hard thing is realizing that a first year teacher is expected to control her classroom just as much as a 10th year class. Like they're both given the same responsibilities, but it is so hard. And I've seen this arc of like the first year um, of teaching. It's like once you make it past that crazy survival hump, you're good then it's smooth sailing, but it's so hard. The kids will keep on testing you until they realize, oh, you're in it for the long run. Yeah, my older son tells me about the different approaches that teachers take to try to kind of have the upper hand in the classroom. And he's like, there's the the yeller who thinks like the more they discipline and throw kids out of the class and send them to the office, like that's the way to, through fear, get control of the classroom. And then he's had teachers that go like the other way, like they're just trying to be your friend and they like want to play with you a lot in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And during recess, they join the soccer game and they think, oh, if the if the kids see me as like 
one of the gang, then I'll like have the respect and we'll get along. And then he has teachers who like focus on the performance part of it. And they think if they make the class so interesting and so dynamic, almost like they're doing a, not necessarily a stand-up routine, but like a a Broadway performance, then the kids (laughs) will be captivated and and stay engaged. So I love hearing about like all these different styles because I I don't think there's one thing that automatically works. You get different kids, different years and and what might resonate with them or not. Have you seen like from these different and I know oversimplifying the kind of teacher someone can be, but have you seen styles that you think in general have the highest likelihood of the kids getting on board with what you're trying to do? So I think so. I think um, when you were describing the different, I loved how you categorized it. And I, in my head, I was thinking, mm-hmm, yep, all those teachers. <laughs> I think it's important to not be your student's friend. I am an adult. I am a role model, but I will not be, and I, you know, there's a phrase within the teaching community, try not to be the sage on the stage, instead be the guide on the side. Um, if you can be kind of this role model position, but a facilitator, you're not standing behind your desk or your stender. I have important things to say. I know things, you don't know it. Instead, it's, I know some things I know about how you can join me in learning this. And sometimes it's the little nuances of saying let's instead of you, you know, certain ways of thinking about how this is a teamwork kind of position. I think there's room for a lot of that in the classroom. There is room for being an entertainer, but not all the time. It shouldn't be you in the spotlight, students just watching. It's about going on this learning journey together and really empowering students with choice, helping them make their own choices and take ownership of their own learning. And so before we get to that Jewish moment and how you've transitioned in your career, how long were you a classroom teacher for? And you mentioned you started with middle school kids. Did you end up teaching different ages? Like what was that trajectory like for you? So I was in the classroom for about 10 years and I got a taste of all the different grades and I have a special love for each different age group. I was a fifth grade homeroom teacher for years and I loved that because we had hours together, like I'd say a good four hours when I could really get to know each student and see their learning goals and help them figure out what each student needs. And then I moved up to middle school. I went back to middle school teaching different subjects and then I graduated uh, to high school. So I taught fifth grade through 11th grade at this point. I have a friend who's a teacher. He's taught fourth and fifth grade. And he says what he loves about that particular age is that they're beyond things like you know, teeth coming out and like physical needs, but they're not so mature that their opinions have been like hardened and they view themselves almost as like adults. So it's like a a sweet spot in the middle. It's the best age. But then how does that change though, as you then get to kids that are like a year or two away from going to college themselves? So each grade, I mean, there's the kid in everyone, which is why even today when I, I sometimes create things for adults it still has that appeal to the kid, the kid in us. I think that, like I joke about the 11-year-old inside of me, I think we all have that. In a fifth grader, you see it. Like, that's who who you see, totally. In a high schooler, it's kind of covered up by a lot of the, you know, there's a lot more peer pressure and trying to do what's cool and maybe a little bit of an edge. But it's all it's still there, that curiosity, that excitement about the world, the wonder, you know, that thing that you see, that kind of spark that you would see in an elementary school kid, I think is really inside everyone, unless they're super jaded and have lost touch with it. But I think there's always a chance to go back. I've even taught, let's say, the same poem to a fifth grade class, 
and the 11th grade class. And you can go so much deeper and you can turn it into a whole essay prompt and discussion in 11th grade, let's say, and you can't go that same deep, let's say in fifth grade. But likewise, you know, Torah, you have kids learning the same Parsha, they're going to learn it for every single year, and hopefully they're learning it with more depth and sophistication, but it's the same content. Okay, and so for all the parents who are listening right now, who are thinking, all right, we're, we're talking to someone who has a lot of experience teaching, what is your advice to the parents about, here are the best things you can be doing that make our life easier as a teacher and makes this like triangular relationship of parent, teacher, and child like the most effective? There are a number of things that I found kind of created magic in the classroom and I try to do the same thing at home as a mom and that is create this element of surprise, mystery. Always keep your students or your kids on their toes. So guess what? What are we going to have for breakfast? Like will it be this or this? And suddenly, <laughs> you know, a simple question of what are we going to have for breakfast can turn into a game. But really kind of getting on their level and even on their eye level, kind of sometimes kneeling down. If I had a student who was having a hard time, sometimes I would, you know, crouch down to be eye level, um, even though I am, well, I'm only five feet, so I'm not significantly taller than a lot of these students, but to kind of stoop to where they are to understand them better and then kind of be a guide in however, you know, whatever way you can spending time showing you care, asking questions about the things they love, following up about little stories, little anecdotes that they might not think is a big deal. So like in the classroom would be, oh, how'd your hockey game go on Sunday? Like, oh, hey, how do you know about that? Well, didn't you mention that during recess last week? So following up about the things that might seem insignificant to you, but for them, it's their whole world. I would say that's a big thing. Okay. And so before we transition to what you're doing now, let's take one quick tangent back to your personal story. I would guess somewhere along this 10-year teaching journey, like a special someone probably came into your life. And I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who was raised observant, when you start thinking about dating and marriage, was it just like a given that the kind of people that you would be exposed to, that you'd be willing to go on a date with, would be from like a similar background to you? And as you started getting to know people, did you find that there are a lot of similarities that there was like a whole spectrum of even people who were observant compared to how you were raised. I have this thing that I like to think about sometimes. I dated a lot of different people. And I sometimes like to say, I tell my husband, if all the guys I went out with were put in a room together and not told what they had to do with each other, they would not be able to figure it out. Like they <laughs> range in everything, like not just age, height, but also religious affiliation, goals. I really dated a diverse bunch. I was very open-minded, kind of like I can, if I meet somebody who um, shares overall, you know, basic Torah values and and our personalities go well together, then I'm open to it. But then, thank God, my husband came along, and it just, I didn't know I was looking for him, but I was. Okay, and were your backgrounds similar enough, or was there some negotiation in terms of, oh, you were raised this way, I was this way, where are we going to meet on some of these issues? No, I, I think our backgrounds were similar. Um, we actually went to high school in the same community, but I'm two and a half years older than him, so I would not have been paying attention. I was a senior. I wouldn't <laughs> have been hanging out with the 10th graders. So our backgrounds were similar, but he has that playfulness and childlike curiosity that I have too, and I think that's something. Like I remember at one point I said to my friend while I was dating, I feel like I need to find someone who would be willing to play hide and seek in the subway system with me. And, <laughs> and I you've think, done that with him? 
Not yet, but it's something <laughs> that we would definitely do. We've done similar things. Got it. So it sounds like that made it easier, at least in terms of as you were heading towards marriage and thinking about kids down the line, like you had a good baseline of how you were going to raise them from an observance perspective. Right, exactly. Okay, so now let's go back into your career trajectory. So there's a point in time you mentioned you did about a decade of teaching where you start thinking, I want to do something different and take what I'm learning in the classroom, but apply it in a different way. I think I always had this deep drive to somehow make an impact in the world in whatever little way I could. I'm an avid podcast listener, and I used to drive into school. I was listening to a few podcasts. One of them is called How I Built This. I don't know if you're familiar with that, with Guy Raz. And I would pull up to school, and I would be in tears just from the inspiration of hearing people share their stories of how they started something on their own. I also was listening to a podcast called Don't Keep Your Day Job, which is funny. (laughs) She has a book also. This is with Kathy Heller, and I I loved her book. I was a little self-conscious about reading it near my coworkers, like, don't keep your day job, don't worry. (laughs) Um, I'm a creative, and I need to be putting things out there. It's just something I can't explain. Back in 2014, this was while I was still dating, I remember I was actually getting over a breakup, wallowing in self-pity, and I decided, that's it, like, enough crying about yourself, do something. So I took out this sketchbook, and I just started sketching this idea. Originally, it was going to be called Thank God I'm Jewish, and I was going to share digital art pieces that I was going to make, sharing my favorite parts about being Jewish. I wrote down a few ideas. I wrote down some of my fears, you know, scared of running out of ideas, scared of facing hate. And then I created an Instagram account, and I started it that day. I think it was January 1st, 2014. So it started out as just an Instagram account where I would share moments that I love about being a Jewish. And over the years, it has developed, especially when the pandemic first hit in March and everyone was kind of shell-shocked, like, what are we supposed to do? Wait, I'm working, I'm juggling, the kids are home, the house is messy, and they're now I have to teach them about upcoming holidays and give them dinner. Like So much was going on, and I saw the need to put out creative Jewish educational materials. It kind of just started right there. I started doing some puppet shows, you know, on Facebook Live, and I started making holiday packets. I did like a whole Passover packet and sent it out, and that's kind of really where that Jewish moment started really taking a a new direction, taking off. Got it. So you started, as you were putting these things together, thinking this can actually grow into more than just an idea, but actually a business that I can grow and become kind of my full-time thing? I wasn't thinking long-term. I was just thinking, what can I do now to help? What can I do right now? I see a need and I feel like I have to step up. And if not now, when? I I was kind of shy on my social media page. Like I had never shown up with my face or done a video. But I kept thinking, I don't know. What about the anti-Semites? What about, I don't know if I, like, what, what if I don't know what to say? But I realized that those fears were just obstacles and that I should push past them. And what, how can I become the best version of myself? So how did what you were doing then, like these early successes you had, you mentioned what you're doing for Pesach, how did that morph into that Jewish moment? What was that pathway that you took where it got from the beginning and the idea to actually being the sustainable site that you now have? Well, the Instagram project was called That Jewish Moment. It has always been That Jewish Moment. And what I started getting were, you know, were requests from teachers. Hey, do you have anything for... Hanukkah, do you have any, what if you make a book about um, art? Or like I started getting requests and I started 
kind of doing what the people asked for. And I still, I constantly get requests. I, I never know what I'll do next. Um, I also have some you know, long-term projects that I'm working on that I think the world could use, but it really started by seeing what the needs were. And I also, um, I had this game that I had been developing of an interactive Seder game with 100 cards, and I wanted to have it printed. I was in touch with some factories in China, but they all had shut down because of COVID. And I had to kind of let go of that imagination of these glossy, beautiful cards coming out of this box. And I made a print it at home, you know, print do it yourself game. And it sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies. Families all over were looking for something to make their Seder. A lot of people were making Seder for the first time ever. You know, they'd been going to their parents and in-laws or a program, but suddenly everyone was making it at home. So sometimes I find that that helps me as a creator to let go of perfect and just do it messy and your version of messy is better than other people's version of whatever it could be so that really helped me kind of build momentum and do you have a sense of who your primary audience is both in terms of their ages and where they are on the religious spectrum the business gurus i listen to on podcasts and the ones i follow on social media always talk about finding your niche like you should be able to create that avatar in your head of who your ideal person is and i can't do it because I have such a diverse audience and I hear feedback from people of all ages. I have, uh, there's a man in his 70s who's currently working through my, my davening diary. I have a, you know, a six-year-old girl who her mom reached out asking if I can, when my next book is coming out, like we're talking very diverse in age and religious affiliation. I have some Hasidic Jews who use my materials. Sometimes they'll ask like, oh, can you change this? Or maybe, you know, instead of using the word God, can you use the word Hashem? And then I have people who have really no background in Judaism at all, and they're just starting to tap into that. So it's it's definitely a challenge because it, it helps to have that avatar, like to think of that person you're creating for. And in my mind, it's kind of this like big crowd of different looking people. But I, you know, honestly, I, I do love that. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because it's, as you're creating new things, if you were preparing it for someone who was like born and raised observant, you could talk in one way. And if you're talking to somebody who's like completely secular, who just doesn't have the knowledge base to understand, even beyond the basics of like the holidays that you were just bringing up, how different the material might look. But you don't have this specific avatar in your mind as you're making the material, you're trying to have it, I guess, appeal to a wide range of people on on the full spectrum of Judaism. Right, so I mean, I use what I, I learned in the classroom which is teach to everybody and provide the tools so that everybody can access it. So let's say, for example, right now, top secret, well, not really, because I have a bunch of people reviewing currently, I'm working on a Jewish joke book for kids. And I want this to be for all Jewish kids, whether they have gone to Hebrew school, day school or not. So the way I you know, set it up is that I have a glossary in the beginning. These are important words and phrases to know for you to understand the jokes. So some kids might skip right past that and they'll understand the jokes. Other kids might need to kind of spend some time learning the words, looking them up, discussing it with an adult before they can understand it. But if I think the same content really can be provided as long as you're giving some tools to make it accessible to everyone. You have so much content on your site, and I was perusing it before our interview to prepare, and I wish we could go through everything, but I handpicked a few things that I wanted to specifically ask you about, okay? Sounds fun. I'm ready. So in terms of workshops, I was particularly drawn to the one called Cafe Connect. So can you kind of share the backstory of how that came about and and who the audience is for that? 
Yes. So I I say I love everything about coffee. Everything except the actual coffee. I don't I don't drink coffee. I don't like the way it tastes. I don't like the way it makes me feel. But there's something special about the ambiance of a cafe, a coffee shop, and I see Tfila as kind of this opportunity to have coffee meetings, three meetings, right? So often when you walk into a cafe, you'll see these little, you know, quiet meetings happening. And before davening, I think we need to meet with ourselves. We need to develop our own self-awareness and think about what are my tefillah needs, you know, prayer style, preferences, etc. I think we need to meet God. A lot of people might be comfortable with the daily routine of prayer, but not actually think about the relationship with God. Who, who is God? How is God in my life? And also, I think we need to meet our goals. What are some tiny little goals we can set for ourselves and how can we meet those goals? So Cafe Connect is a coffee shop style workshop and I've done it for kids, preteens, and teens. And I'm currently working on an online version for adults where I kind of like to guide the participants through these three meetings. And there are lots of coffee puns throughout and for the in-person ones I, I have I bought this I forgot what it's called like a, an aroma diffuser you plug it in and the room smells like coffee I don't like coffee either but my wife drinks enough for both of us so as, as a couple we're having the right amount sounds good okay so now turning our attention to the books and you brought this up earlier my davening diary when I saw that on your site I was thinking about how as someone who wasn't raised religious and then I was like on the path I didn't know that there was going to be three prayer services per day. Like I had no idea because I was coming from one prayer service per year. Right, right so like, exactly. I had like no idea. Like my family would just go say for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. So I really had no idea what the daily rhythm was. And as I started doing it, I would think, wow, this is a pretty big commitment that I have to go three times a day. I need to find meaning in this each time in some unique way. So how do you think that book, My Davening Diary, kind of connects to parents helping their children find like the inspiration and the meaning in, in this ritual that they're going to be doing basically by rote because they're born and raised with it? Well, the, the idea really is to, to bring yourself into it. How can you take you and your set of strengths and your set of passions and the things that inspire you and relax you and the people you look up to how can you take all of that and put that into the davening the davening which you really had no say in it was established years before so how can you kind of mesh those two and the book actually does not focus on any content because I have a very diverse crowd and people have different um, nusach or different tefillot or prayers that they say Uh, but it's really about taking the time to think about what your mood is, let's say, or something that you are grateful for, a big thing in your life, a little thing. If you take that one minute before davening, it can really, really affect your tefillah. I I like to compare it to someone on a diving board. You can either just jump right in or you can take 10 seconds and inhale. And those 10 seconds make a huge difference in what your swim underwater will be like. I'm not talking about spending an hour in the forest gathering your thoughts, which is beautiful. But if we take even 30 seconds to collect our thoughts and think, wait, I'm about to talk to God. What can I be thinking of? What's something that's bogging me down right now that I can write down on a little piece of paper so that I don't have to think about it? It won't distract me. It won't keep popping into my head. So the little things like that, the little steps we can take before dominating. You know, it's also interesting to me as someone who didn't have religion in my life in the earlier part, I'm able to look at your material through two lenses. Like I can see it as mm, someone who's a secular Jew and I can see it as someone who's now observant. That's cool. At the same time, 
I'm watching my kids being raised fully observant, and I spend a lot of time thinking, wow, what a shame it would be if, like, when they hit 18, 19, 20, they threw this whole lifestyle away. Because my investment in what I'm doing for me is also, and my wife, it's meant to be, like, paying it forward, like, to the next generation. So I'm curious for your audience that either is on a path to becoming religious or already is, how do you think your material can be a nice supplement to what the family is doing to, to keep the excitement for everything that, that the parents are hoping the kids will continue as they move out of the house over time? Something that I do for every single project, and it's so tedious and it's also so vulnerable, is I share the work with about 30 other educators and clergy members from across the spectrum of Judaism, and I ask for feedback, which is, it's really, really tough, but I'm able to hear from, let's say, someone who is just becoming more observant in their own way, or someone who has been, you know, teaching Jewish kids for years, I'm able to hear from their perspective, how can I change the wording, or what other activities can I include to help encourage positive associations with Judaism, because that's really what my mission is. I'm not telling people what to do or even how to do it, but I'm trying to create positive associations because I love Judaism, I love being Jewish, I'm grateful and thankful to be living such a life, and I want to share that joy with others. I asked you about one workshop and one book, so I wanted to give you time if there's like one other piece of content you wanted to share on the podcast that you think would be interesting for our listeners to hear about. I had such a good time putting out those... Um, the virtual escape the room games. This was a, you know, a synagogue reached out to me. They said, "Do you create escape the room games?" I often will say, "Sure," <laughs> you know, and that that begins a new project. But if anyone likes to be challenged, like solving riddles, whether you're eight or fifty-eight, I had a lot of fun putting those together. There's find freedom, which is an escape Egypt game, and the bag at the door, which is a Purim whodunit game. In my life, I kind of gamify everything. I don't know if you gotten that sense. So this is a way to kind of gamify learning about the Jewish holidays. And so as you look forward to what that Jewish moment can become in three years, five years, 10 years, do you have like this vision board of like where it could grow to? Or are you really going like project by project and, and living in the moment? I sometimes wish I was better at the long-term vision. I, I have so many question marks. It seems so far away. But actually, that helps me focus on just the now. What can, what's the next project I can do? And that also helps me, by the way, in my Jewish life. Instead of thinking like, oh my goodness, like how many fasts am I going to fast in my life, God willing? <laughs> you know, it's more, what mitzvah can I do right now? Like, what's the, I have five extra minutes right now. What can I do? Maybe I'll call my grandma. Like, what is your next mitzvah? So that's kind of how I see that Jewish moment. What is the next project I can do? Otherwise, I think it would be so overwhelming. I, I've heard an analogy of, like, if you would show a baby a warehouse of food and you would say, look, at you're going to eat all of this throughout <laughs> your life. Like, that would be really overwhelming. And likewise, Torah, you know, realizing how much there is to learn, how much that we don't know. But if we literally take it one pasuk, one verse at a time, it's so much more palatable. That is a beautiful motto and the perfect lead into our lightning round, how we like to close all of our interviews. So I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. Sounds like a game. I'm into it. <laughs> I figured you'd be, you'd be game for this. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the first one, what advice would you give to parents who have 
a younger child who is just like fighting everything that you're trying to do from a Jewish perspective with them. So they, they don't want to go to shul or if they're observant, they don't want to wear their tzitzit and they're, and they're just kind of challenging all these things from from young age. What would be your, your recommended approach for that type of child? I would say find something that they love and go all in on that. Instead of trying to fight, what if you can join them on something that they love, that they care about, and once they feel your love and they feel your care, I think it will be easier for them to open their heart to other things that you might be trying to encourage in their life. And we talked a lot about modeling, which was something that your parents did for you. So what would you say is something that any parent could could most easily model that would have the highest likelihood of their kid seeing it and taking it in as this is a good reason to be inspired and interested in Judaism? I talk to God all the time, sometimes out loud. And honestly, it does feel nerdy. I will be driving in the car and I'll say, God, thank you so much. I'm so glad that merge went smoothly for the littlest things when I know that my you know kids are listening in the back. And this is something that I've been doing always. So if I am constantly having that conversation with God, and God is not just this word that appears sometimes in the English of you know their prayer books, their sidurim, um, but it's something, it, it's a part of our, our life, I think. And it's not, I'm not faking it. Like I honestly would like to talk to God, um, but I think that's an important thing to model because that's really what religion is and what Judaism is. It's building that relationship with God. So if God is real in your life, then and show that, share that, even if it sometimes does feel a little awkward. Okay, and let's talk about Shabbos now. What do you think is the best thing a parent can do on Shabbos to get their kid excited about it and feel connected to that special day? Something that we do is we have certain games or books that we don't use during the week, and they have nothing to do with Judaism. They're just like a fun matching game. It's like, nope, don't, we're not using it. We're saving it for, for Shabbos or for Shabbat because there's so much of, no, we don't do this, don't touch that, don't, but if we have certain things that like, ah, now they can come out because it is that time of week, or like even just using certain dishes or um, certain napkin rings, the little things that you can do to show this is a special day in our home, um, instead of this is a day when you really can't do a lot of things that you want to do. Got it. And you just mentioned books, and you even in the course of the interview mentioned a couple of books that helped you career-wise as you were thinking about what you wanted to do. What's, though, a Jewish book, either that you read growing up or something you're using with your kids, beyond the ones that you've done yourself, that you really love and you think is like just a great thing to have in the toolkit for parents to connect with their kids? I love Benny's Mitzvah Notes. I don't know if you've read it. Besides no, the it fact about? that the pages are laminated and hard to tear, <laughs> it is the most heartwarming story about a little boy seeing the pride his parents get when he does, you know, mitzvot. Look it up, Benny's Mitzvah Notes. It's, it's the cutest. Um, that's a juvenile book, but I, like when I go into a library, even if I'm looking for myself, like I often do go to the kids section because I think authors of children's books have a way of making things fun to look at. Sometimes the adult books are lacking. I still use the children's Haggadah every Seder, even just for myself. Um, but that depends on, you know, your style. That's something that I know I love. Beautiful. You have made your way through the lightning round with flying colors. I want to thank you for participating, for playing a game with me, and for being on Saturday to Shabbos. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard 
or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.